It's good to be with you again. As it was said, my name is Ian. Um, I am your partner in the gospel. I serve at Northwestern University with RUF International, where we welcome international students with hospitality, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and equip kingdom ambassadors. Love being on campus throughout the week, and it's always a supreme joy to be with God's people on the Lord's Day. Uh, Before we open the word, I was told I could give just a brief update on our ministry together on the campus of Northwestern. I'll just say in many ways, it's just been a wonderful academic year. I'll share a few highlights. This Easter, we were able to bring a good group of international students to church with us. The, the night before, I rented a, a big van and I met the students at a, loca- a central location. For many of them, this would be their first time to visit an actual worship service. Most of them grew up maybe going to the mosque. Some of them had visited churches that had been turned into museums of sort, but this was something different. And so I could tell in the, in the van, uh, nerves were high. They were nervous. And so it was Easter, so of course, people were dressed nice. People were, it was a joyful service. The sermon was powerfully focused on the resurrection of Christ. After the service, as we're walking down the street to the church member's house that will be hosting our, our brunch, I asked a couple of them what they thought. So I asked a friend from Iran who is uh, known to be quite frank. He said to me, you know, I thought this was going to be incredibly boring. I planned to sleep. But I found the pastor's sermon to be very thought-provoking. I asked uh, a girl from Turkey what she thought. She said, you know, honestly, I was a bit afraid. I didn't know what these people were going to be like. But it looks like these folks are a family. Uh, You know, at the beginning of the day, they were nervous. By the time we were heading home after brunch, people were grateful to have come, I believe. And I think this this is key for those who are exploring Christ, to see the family of God coming together. Uh, Also, another highlight is that I have a student from Japan who came to faith while he was here. I think I've mentioned him before. Uh, Well, he returned home, and we were praying together uh, for him to find a wife. He wanted to be married. There are just so few Christians in Japan. But the Lord heard our prayers, and he's going to be married next week. And so we're just so thrilled that there will be another covenant home in Japan, which many call a, a spiritual desert of sort. Lastly, a couple of international students who are believers that attend our our small group, discipleship group, they'll be getting married next week as well, and I was able to walk alongside them, and I'll be officiating their wedding, and man, the the temptation to to marry outside of the Lord in Evanston, Illinois is is quite strong, so very thankful for that. You can pray for us. I invite you to pray for us. Pray uh, that our summer outreach would go very well. Pray for RUF training. That'll be in July, and, and as, as was prayed here, I'm just so thankful for that, that pray that Hannah and my life and the, and the spiritual life of our volunteer team would be rich and we would be revitalized this summer. All right, well, this morning we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, if you want to go ahead and join me there. Uh, you may recall that the book of Hebrews is a sermon. It's a sermon to struggling people. The preacher aims to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and to strengthen faith in the firm resolve of these Hebrew Christians. As they walk together, they're walking together in a proverbial wilderness, the wilderness of this age. They're heading to the promised land 
of the age to come. And he, said, he makes things very practical. He says one thing that they must do in order to persevere in faith is to participate in the people of God. And so let's, before we read, let me pray for us and then I'll read the scripture for us this morning. Our great God in heaven, I ask, we ask, Lord, that you would do a, a marvelous work of your grace in our hearts, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted so high and that uh, you would teach us of the great privilege it is to be a part of your family, to be your home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. This is God's word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. In a recent article by a social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt, he compared our current social setting to life, living life after the fall of the Tower of Babel. And so this article caught my attention for uh, various reasons, but one reason is it's talking about the, the Tower of Babel. You know, this story, this story comes from the book of Genesis. It details for us mankind's coming together to build a great tower that would reach the heavens. Why were they building this tower? Well, the, the text says that they wanted to make a name for themselves. This was going to be a temple, a temple in celebration of a human achievement. It was an act of self-exaltation. But God comes down, he confuses their language so that they would be dispersed across the face of the earth. And though the text doesn't say this, uh, as Haidt acknowledges, he says this image of these people walking amid a tower destroyed, amid ruins, unable to communicate, condemned to incomprehension, is a striking image. And he says that this image describes our current situation, describes the time we're living in. He argues that what sociologists say bind people together, which is strong institutions, social networks, shared stories, all of these things have been greatly diminished. He lays the blame mainly at social media, uh, but he acknowledges other factors as well. Society, he says, has become fractured. Animosities have become enraged. People are divided and mutual understanding is at an all-time low. You know, life after Babel does indeed capture in part the time that we are living in, in the time that we have been living in, long before the advent of social media. You know, living together in mutual understanding has been a challenge ever since 
the fall of man into sin. You remember right after the fall of man into sin, Cain kills his brother. Israel would go on to revolt against Moses. The kingdom of God is divided. Living together has been a challenge. It always has been. Division, incomprehension, animosity is the human story. And yet, Scripture does not conclude at Babel. God would come down again in the person of his son, and he comes down not to confuse language and disperse people, but he calls people to come together, to live in mutual love and understanding. So yes, we live after Babel, but we also live after the death and resurrection of the son and in light of his coming return. And so what I want to do this morning is zero in on what it looks like to to be a member of the people of God, what it looks like to participate in the life of the church. And so our scripture passage this morning gives us three ways that we can participate in the people of God, drawing near, holding fast, and considering others. Let's look at these three together. First, we draw near. Look with me at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, this invitation to draw near to God probably does not strike you as much as it struck those first listeners, these Hebrew Christians. You know, for the Israelites, the presence of God was something that was always partly desired and yet also partly dreaded. You see, there were these pivotal moments throughout the history of Israel where God's presence was powerfully manifested. You may recall after God redeems his people out of Egypt, he takes the Israelites to the foot of Mount Sinai, and there he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. And when God begins to speak, lightning strikes, thunder sounds, and the mountain begins to smoke. And so the people gathered at the foot of the mountain begin to back up. They stand afar. They even say to Moses, Moses, you speak to us, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. God's people, in some sense, dreaded his nearness. And so when this invitation to these first century Hebrew Christians, when this invitation comes to them, likely examples filled their minds on why they might hesitate. Maybe they thought of Nadab and Abihu, those priests of Israel who offered unauthorized sacrifices to God and so were consumed by fire. Maybe they thought of Uzzah who stuck his hand out to steady the Ark of the Covenant as they were carelessly carrying it back to Jerusalem. Or maybe they even thought of the temple structure itself, which by design restricted access the closer one got to God. The author of Hebrews earlier says that only one man once a year could go beyond that curtain that separated the people from God's white, hot, holy presence. Living with God was a perennial problem for the people of Israel. It was greatly desired, of course, 
but it was also greatly uh, dreaded. And yet the writer says in verse 22, let us draw near, not with dread, but with full assurance. Something of great consequence has happened. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, not with dread, but with confidence. You may remember at the crucifixion, some bizarre things happened, right? Darkness covers the face of the earth at midday. Jesus cries his last breath. He yells out to God. And the temple curtain in the temple splits in two from top to bottom. At that moment, Jesus is becoming the final sacrifice for sin. And when he rises again from the dead and ascends to the right hand of God the Father, he becomes for us the perfect high priest. The high priest that doesn't just go into the Holy of Holies on earth, but now has entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven. One who doesn't just go in there on his, on his own. One who washes us and cleanses us by the pure water of his spirit so that we might go in there with him. This author is saying that because Jesus has died, you can be near to God. He's also saying that because Jesus Christ died, God wants to be near to you. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that the God of creation longs to be near to you? You know, this, if this weren't true, he would not have sent his one and only beloved son. You know, drawing near in the book of Hebrews is kind of like this metaphor for the intimacy that we can have with God in prayer. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says it this way, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in the time of need. Nearness to God in prayer is the special privilege of the people of God. And so the expectation is, is that God's people would be confessing sin, seeking help, and experiencing the presence of God in prayer. Now, it's probably true for you, as it is for me, that this is not always your experience in prayer. You do not always sense God's nearness. And so because this is the case, we often look at prayer as primarily a, a duty instead of a delight. And, I, you know, you should say that, I should say that um, if you don't have a profound experience of God's nearness every time you pray, that's okay. That's okay. That's a part of this age. But what's not okay is being okay without ever having that. We cannot settle for duty when delight is what God desires for us. And for our prayer to be delighting in God's nearness, the author says we need two qualities, a true heart and full assurance. That is, we need sincerity of heart and a clear-headed confidence in the work of Christ on our behalf, as one commentator puts it. 
How do we have a sincere heart and a clear-headed confidence in prayer? You know, this is a tough question. And this question probably plagued the Puritans more than any other people. The Puritans were people of sincerity and of prayerfulness. And through much reflection, they gained wisdom on prayer. The Puritans understood that we must do for ourselves what the author of Hebrews is doing for them. We must use scripture to fan the flames of our affections for God in prayer. In other words, we must practice scripture meditation. You know, the Puritan Thomas Manton explained it this way. He said, the word feeds meditation and meditation feeds prayer. Meditation must follow the hearing of the word and precede prayer because what we take in by the word, we digest by meditation and we let out in prayer. The Puritan William Bates says it plainly. He says, The great reason our prayers are so ineffectual is that we do not meditate on Scripture before them. You know, the Puritans noticed that if you move directly from Bible reading or Bible study right into your prayer list, you have likely fed the mind and not inflamed the heart. And the Lord God in heaven wants our hearts. It is through the practice of Scripture meditation that prayer becomes sincere, confident, and delighting in God's presence. The Puritans also understood that you had to make space in your life to do what they called praying until you pray. Charles Spurgeon, the London Baptist preacher, taps into the Puritan tradition when he says this. He says, pray until you can pray. Pray to be helped to pray. And do not give up praying because you cannot pray. Because for it is when you think you cannot pray that you really begin praying. You see, prayer is the opposite of self-sufficiency. If you believe that you can make it on your own, you will not pray. And sometimes it is through the adversity of prayer itself that we are confronted with our insufficiency, Charles Spurgeon says. And most importantly, this takes time. You have to make space in your life for it, like any other relationship, in order to have a deep and intimate friendship, you must make room in your life. You know, there's one more hint for prayer here, maybe in this passage, and it's in the pronoun that the author uses. He says, let us draw near. We should be praying together. Maybe unlike any other act, praying together brings sincerity and confidence into the heart. You know, the Lord uniquely meets with us when we pray together. You know that verse, if two or three are gathered, you know, it's in the context of church discipline more than anything, but it does touch on prayer when Jesus says, if two of you agree on anything you ask, the Father in heaven will get it, do it for you. Asking God together is pleasing. And what we see from the book of Acts is that when the church gathers together to pray, God does some marvelous faith-building things. So to participate in the people of God, we draw near together by praying with each other. Second, we hold fast. Look with me at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The book of Hebrews, as I said, is a sermon to some struggling people. They are tempted to doubt the sufficiency of Christ. They're tempted to doubt whether following Jesus is worth it. They are tempted to return to their former lives in Judaism. 
And when you begin to think just how consequential the coming of Jesus was for them, you begin to see this is a quite, this is understandable. You see, these first century Hebrew Christians for over a thousand years, knew this, for over a thousand years, the Israelites met on the Sabbath day. Now they meet on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. For over a thousand years, circumcision designated, set apart the people of God. Now baptism in the name of Jesus did. For over a thousand years, the temple and the priesthood governed the spiritual lives of these people. But now those former ways were to cease. The coming of Jesus was consequential for them. And not only that, it was incredibly controversial. First century Hebrew Christians faced opposition from their previous religious community, the pagan society around them, and sometimes even the state. There were times that a mere accusation could result in state violence. This was such the case that Larry Hurtado, who is this historian, he wrote a short little book titled this, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in Those First Three Centuries? And in this short little book, he detailed some of the liabilities of following Jesus. He says there were political liabilities. These were initially absorbed by the leaders, but eventually were, were absorbed by the community as a whole. The section following the one we just read talks about property of these congregant members being confiscated because of their, their identity with those who were imprisoned for Christ. There were also social liabilities. Early Christians, as they became distinct from their former religious Jewish communities, faced opposition from friends and fellow citizens. You know, this was due to the relevance of the traditional gods to daily life in the Roman Empire and Christian refusal to show them honor. You know, rituals were part and parcel in life of life in the Roman world. Whether it was over meals at a house or at public events, in order to honor both the host and the idol, you had to offer sacrifices and incense and things like this. And so many Christians lapsed under these pressures. And the temptation to apostatize was very real. And so maybe a better question for us is why on earth did anyone stay a Christian in those first three centuries? Or maybe even better, how did they manage to do it? You know, in some ways, those first three centuries were unique, but in other ways, this is the normal life. This has been the normal life of the Christian. Jesus himself said in the parable of the sower that the devil, persecution, and most innocuously, the cares of the world and the love of riches choke out the seeds of the gospel. And not to mention the challenge of your own personal sin that so easily entangles. The entirety of the book of Hebrews assumes that life between the first and the second coming of Jesus requires a holding fast. You know, I'm sure in many ways, or in some ways, you might begin to think, might be beginning to think that your Christian faith is becoming a liability. And this is probably much truer, I would say, for younger Christians than it is for older ones. Fortunately, most of us here do not live under the prospect of state violence. 
But you might wonder what would happen if your faith, the faith that you really believe, becomes widely known. What it might mean for work, what it might mean for peer relationships. Some of you have anxiety about perplexing issues of conscience you face or will face if you continue in the career that you have chosen. What will the cost be? The author says, faced with these challenges, one thing that we must do is hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. The confession of our hope here refers to the objective hope of who Jesus is, what, his, what he's done for us, and what it means for our future. This call is to retain the confession of Jesus as our high priest and sacrifice for sin, that he is the only way, and to hold firmly to that until the very end. You know, holding fast requires clarity, and it requires certainty. It requires us not to blur the lines on what the content of our hope is and to be certain of it. Now, I'm not sure if this is as true today as it was previously, but I feel like previously holding to beliefs with conviction was mainly viewed as unintelligent. Nowadays, depending on what the belief is, it may be viewed as unintelligent, but also kind of problematic. In fact, I was recently at an event on campus where uh, some professors were talking about the biblical prophets. It was a, a, a philosophy professor in Northwestern, and man, he, he loved the biblical prophets. He loved their courage, their righteous cause for the poor, their, their willingness to suffer. He just had tremendous admiration for these, these prophets. But uh, at the end of his talk, he, he decided to share what he thought about uh, modern religious people. He thought, well, what, what, what's the biggest problem with the mo modern religious people? You know what, he, what answer he gave? He gave this answer. He says, dogmatism. Holding on to beliefs with resoluteness as if the, uh, the prophets were dogmatic themselves. You know, I can remember reading a book in high school. It was written by this young pastor. And um, he compared his content of the content of the faith to the springs around a trampoline. This was a metaphor. He said something along the lines of this. He said, if one of your cherished beliefs turns out to be false, uh, what would that do to your faith? Could you, could, you still be, could you still be a Christian? And so the belief he chose for his illustration was the virgin birth. He says, if it turns out that Jesus wasn't really born of a virgin, could your, could your faith still bounce? And so he argued that it could. And I remember as a high school student thinking, this is a really perplexing analogy. Because like on the face of it, it seems reasonable, it seems smart, but it failed to recognize that some beliefs are so foundational, so pivotal to remove them would mean the end of faith altogether. Could this pastor say, along with the Apostle Paul, if Christ has not been raised, you are dead in your sins. Unfortunately, many more strings would come off this pastor's trampoline. Why do we hold fast with firm resolve? Why? Verse 23 continues, for he who promised is faithful. The faithfulness of God is on display in scripture. And as we walk with him, understanding our lives in the light of this grand story, 
And as we walk together, swapping stories of God's faithfulness, we will have very great reasons to hold fast to the hope of the gospel. Third and finally, to participate as members of God's people, we consider others. Look with me at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I didn't catch the significance of this initially, but the Greek here, translated very woodenly, says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And so a commentator says, the pastor of Hebrews here says, uh, he would draw his hearers' attention first to the brothers and sisters, and then uh, to the act of stirring up. This means that this verse teaches us to be attentive and thoughtful, to seek to know one another, seek to love one another, so that we might understand how we best can stir up one another to love and good works. You know, this kind of life-on-life ministry requires proximity and it requires purpose. It requires proximity. We must make it a habit, a habitual practice to meet together as a family of God. You know, there were some very good reasons to neglect the gathering of the people of God in the first century. You know, we went over some of those liabilities, but do you want to know what the most common reason for neglecting the assembly, skipping church, not participating in the life of the church was? It was this. People were busy. People were busy. Just like today, a pastor and professor named Joel Beakey was on a plane once flying to a a conference in Brazil, a Bible conference, and he pulled out his Bible and the person next to him struck up a conversation and throughout the course of their conversation, she learned that he was a pastor and he learned that she was a Christian, but she said to him, you know, I don't go to church because the Bible doesn't tell you you have to. And so he asked her, if I can show you a place in the scripture where the Bible tells you to go to church, will you, will you start going? And, so, and so she said, yes. And so he took her to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. She admitted, admitted that she hadn't seen that verse before. You know, the preacher of Hebrews could have supplied several reasons why they should not neglect meeting together, but he makes it very practical. He says that there is a day approaching and you need to be ready for it. The day is the way that early Christians refer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. And in this one event, there was both a sweet promise and a sober warning. For those who persevere in faith, this day is longed for. The closing verses of the Bible probably has the shortest and most sweet prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. At the return of Jesus, every tear will be wiped away, every disease cured, every suffering undone, every hope realized. In fact, what we have at the end of Scripture is the anti-Babel. We have people coming together from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, not to exalt themselves, but to sing praises to God and to the Lamb. But this would also be a great day of judgment for the enemies of God. And so it was a sober warning for those who would fall away. It was to be avoided. 
Participation in the church is God's means of persevering the faith of his people until the final day. It is essential. You know, in the relatively small world of international student ministry workers, there is this continual discussion, this, this continual problem that we seek to address. And the, the question we seek to address is this. When a student professes faith in the Lord Jesus here while studying in the U.S. and then returns home, how can we be sure that they will continue in their faith? I think one study found that three out of four Chinese students who make professions of faith here in the U.S., when they return home, leave the faith. And you know what one key factor is, uh, the, the key factor on whether they continue in their faith or not is, is this one thing, whether they are connected to a community of believers or not. This is surely true for domestic students as well. The most important decision you make when you move for work, for school, for whatever, is where you will go to church. Faith lived in isolation will inevitably die. Everyone needs encouragement as the day draws near. You know, during the Protestant Reformation, one of the controversies that emerged was over the nature of the church itself. Because the reformers, because of their teaching, found themselves eventually excommunicated from the Church of Rome. And the Church of Rome taught that there was no possibility of salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church. And so they had to, the reformers had to articulate a definition of the true church. And this is what they, they said. They said, any assembly that preaches the true gospel, administers the sacraments in integrity and practices church discipline faithfully is a true church. And so the reformers did not disagree on the necessity of church, but on its definition. However, later on, the heritage of the Protestant Reformation began to have a lower view of church. Church membership was seen as optional. And in evangelical circles, true spirituality became me and Jesus like in the corner of the coffee shop. The Westminster Confession strikes the right balance when it says this. There is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside the visible church. Barring extraordinary circumstances met by God with extraordinary grace, the church is a necessary part of the Christian journey to the final day. Participation in the church is God's chosen instrument by which he perseveres our faith. You know, the passage after this is a warning against apostasy. One commentator says this, Neglecting the gathering of the church is the prelude to apostasy. And so what is your attitude towards the church? What role does it play in your spiritual life? What do your actions convey to the next generation? In verse 21, the author says this. He says, Jesus is the great priest over the house of God. He calls the church the house of God because of the gracious work of the Lord Jesus, because of his priesthood, his sacrificial death on the cross, the people of God have become the place of God's dwelling. And when we come together, God gifts us with his presence in a very special way. 
And so to neglect the gathering is to miss out on something extraordinary. God meets with us when we meet together. There was once this younger Christian who sat around a, a fire with an older Christian, and he was sharing with the older Christian his, his uh, disdain for organized religion. And so the young man asked the older man, you know, can I just follow Jesus on my own? Do I like have to, to be involved with those people at the church? And so the old man didn't say anything at all. He just took a pair of tongs, reached into the fire, and grabbed a red hot coal. And he set it on the cold ground. And they sat there in silence until that bright orange coal cooled to a nice dark black. And he had his answer. We cannot live the Christian life alone. We have to be near God. We have to be near one another. Let's pray.